Well, hey, everybody, it's good to see everyone. We want to jump right in and get started because we want to make full use uh, of our time this evening. And uh, you guys don't want to hear from us. You want to hear from Dr. Ben Witherington. Uh, we're going to welcome him in just a minute. I want to remind everybody next week uh, for Hope You, we will be back right here again. And uh, we'll be hearing from Dr. Brittany Mel Mel Melton who uh, is a professor at, uh, at Palm Beach Atlantic University. She's going to be speaking to us on how to better understand the Old Testament. And so a lot of us struggle sometimes with some of our readings in the OT, and it can be tricky to understand. She is going to teach us and share with us how to understand it better. It's going to be another great conversation. All of these have just been so powerful and I want to thank everybody for all of your comments. We're grateful that you guys are uh, benefiting from this. And we're, you know, our goal really was to, of course, expand our mind and our heart. And I got to tell you, we're going to do that tonight for sure. So uh, I want to take just a moment to introduce my friend, uh, Dr. Ben Witherington, who's going to be teaching us tonight on the subject of what he's entitled The Apocalypse Now. And uh, I want to say, let me just share just briefly a couple of things I want you to know about Dr. Ben. He is currently the Amos Professor of New Testament for Doctoral Studies at Asbury Seminary. He is also on the doctoral faculty at St. Andrews University in Scotland. He's a graduate of UNC Chapel Hill, went on to receive his MDiv degree from Gordon-Conwell and a PhD degree from the University of Durham in England. Uh, he is considered one of the top New Testament scholars uh, in the world. And so that's why I want to make uh, great use of all of our time tonight. He has spoken literally all around the world, places like England, Estonia, Russia, Europe, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Australia. Uh, he has written over 50 books. Some of you have already shared with me, you have seen him on television, and he has been on the History Channel, NBC, ABC, CBS, CNN, the Discovery Channel, uh, A&E Channel, and PAX Network. Uh, all of that's great. Here's what I think is better. He is my, one of my daughter's all-time favorite professors in her time at Asbury University, so that by far for me is one of the greatest things. And um, Many of y'all know real quickly, uh, this is a subject matter we try to make. In fact, Dr. Ben, we share often this is sort of a, and I want you to hear me out, it's, we call it a non-essential uh, and because there's a lot of content, there's a lot of conversation around topics like this, but here's what I want our church to know tonight. We get to hear from a man who's quite a bit ahead of us around this material, uh, frankly, an expert in this area, and so uh, we're really privileged, so I hope you got a sharp pencil and some good paper, because we're going to take some good notes tonight. I want to pray for my friend, and we're going to turn it over to Dr. Ben Witherington. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, I'm grateful for this space, and what a privilege, really, to introduce uh, my friend and someone who's had such an influence, really, on, on our church and even in my own family. And I'm so grateful tonight that we get to hear from this wonderful man. And God, I pray that you would give us uh, minds and hearts to listen, uh, and that, that you might do exactly what our prayer has been through Hope University across this summer, that you would expand our mind, but you would also warm our heart uh, towards you, Lord Jesus, and toward your mission. 
And so we're grateful for this time. And I pray a mighty blessing on Dr. Ben as he shares. And everyone, we pray in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Right as I turn it over, let me remind everybody this. Um, you're going to do your uh, write your questions in the chat. Don't wait till the end. Go ahead and write your questions in the chat as he's presenting. And we will, in time, uh, get to as many of those questions in, as we can. Without any further ado, can we all welcome Dr. Ben Witherington to us this evening? Thank you very much. It is good to be with you, and I trust all of you can hear me well. Can you hear me now? If so, raise your hand. <laughs> That's great. Okay, well, let's get rolling. Apocalyptic right. prophecy is the most complicated kind of literature in the whole Bible. So what I tell my students is, do not start with this material. Do not start your study of the Bible here. Save it for later. And there's a long tradition in Protestantism of not understanding this material. John Calvin simply said, I don't get it. And it's the only book of the New Testament he didn't write a commentary on. Luther wow. said, I don't think I get it. But then he speculated about it and thought number 666 was the Pope, which was wrong, but, you know, he was trying. John Wesley said, I am very uncertain on how to interpret this book. And he simply passed along in his notes on the New Testament the thoughts of a German scholar named Johannes Bingel with this disclaimer. He said, well, this is the best we can do, but I'm not insisting that this is the right interpretation. So you understand that even the Protestant reformers, including John Wesley himself, were not sure what to make of this. And, and partly that's because this is a kind of early Jewish literature that was very popular in the first century AD and before, and it is certainly complex. We have some of it in the Old Testament, in, in Ezekiel, and in Daniel, and Zechariah. But the first lesson I would like you to learn about this is that it is visionary prophecy. It is essentially visionary prophecy. It's things that have been seen by the prophet. And that makes it very different for, from oracular prophecy, like the prophecy of Samuel, or the prophecy of some of the early classical prophets like Jeremiah. Uh, it's not largely auditory. When you have auditory prophecy, God can say something, the prophet can hear it, and he can repeat it verbatim. This is not true with visionary prophecy. The prophet has to see it, and then he has to describe it. And the problem with describing God, or heaven, or the afterlife, is you have to use analogies again and again. You have to say things like, it was like, it was like, it was like. If you were to read the first chapter of Ezekiel, which is some would call the birth of apocalyptic literature in the Bible, you'll discover there are about 40 examples of the word like in there. And the angels looked like, and the throne looked like, and the lightning looked like. Well, what we're talking about is trying to describe things that human language is not adequate to describe. And so you need to understand that the language is highly metaphorical and analogical. It's making comparisons. 
Anytime you make a comparison, it is going to be like what is being described, but it's also going to be unlike what we know as well. And that's one of the things that really makes this complex. So let me give you the definition of what is apocalyptic literature right out of the block, and then I'll unpack the definition. It says it's a, genera a genre of revelatory literature. Well, that's exactly right. It involves a revelation through visions. And uh, let's back that up. And, and it is mediated by an otherworldly being. In this case, there are two in the book of Revelation. The first mediator is from the father to the son, so the son's a mediator, and then from the son to an angel, and then the angel informs John of Patmos. It's a revelatory literature with a narrative framework. It tells a story, if you will, which is a revelation mediated by an otherworldly being, i.e. an angel, to a human being like John of Patmos, who is an exile. Okay, next slide. And here's the rest of the definition. It discloses a transcendent reality, i.e. heaven, hell, uh, and that transcendent reality is both up there and out there, but it's also temporal. It envisions what's coming in the future, eschatological salvation and judgment. And it's spatial as well in that it involves the supernatural world, not just the natural world, but the supernatural world. And maybe most importantly, all of this literature from Ezekiel in exile to Daniel in exile to Zechariah in exile and all the way to John of Patmos in exile is it's intended for a persecuted minority who have been displaced. It's intended for a group in crisis, and the intent, the main intent of the literature, is consolation. Basically, it's saying all things work together for good for those who love God, even if right now you're suffering, even if right now you're facing martyrdom. In the end, God is going to resolve these matters in favor of redemption and justice. So one of the main messages here is to comfort the afflicted and tell them God is still in control even though things look chaotic. And, and surely that's a message we can use even today. Very clearly, that's a message we can use today. So it gives us an opportunity to leave judgment, final judgment, in the hands of God. And that is one of the major messages of the book of Revelation. Leave final judgment in the hands of God. You may remember early on in the book of Revelation, we are told that nobody was worthy except Christ himself to unseal the seals or to pour out the bowls, or to sound the trumpets of judgment upon the earth. Nobody was worthy. No one was omniscient, and no one was omnibenevolent except Christ to judge the world. And so one of the bigger messages of this is leave judgment in the hands of God. Leave judgment, final judgment, of people's lives in the hands of God. Don't be pretending like you're God over their life. That's very important. 
This is an important message for a minority group in crisis, and it's meant to give them some consolation that God is still on his throne. And it is indeed referential in character. But what is not true is that it is not literally descriptive. It is referential, but not literally descriptive. So these beasts with multiple heads and umpteen horns and all of that sort of stuff never meant to be literally descriptive, but it is describing a reality, a reality that uh, affected John during his own day and a reality that was yet to come. And it goes all the way from the time of John to the very end, to the time of the new creation. So uh, the book of Revelation is really the only full book of prophecy we have in the New Testament. And we have lots of books of prophecy in the Old Testament. But only the last book in the New Testament is really a book of proper prophecy that deals not only with the present, but also the future, and then the final future when Christ returns. Um, and so it, it's, it's the appropriate book to end the canon with, because it's going to take us all the way from now to then and tell us what the new creation is going to be like. So that's kind of giving you an orientation to what kind of literature it is. Again, it's visionary prophecy. Let's go to the next slide if we can. So the word apocalypsis, Greek word, this is your dose of Greek for tonight, means the unveiling of secrets. What it means is that John is telling us stuff we couldn't just figure out by studying the world. We couldn't figure it out by just listening to the news. We couldn't figure it out by studying nature. And one of the things I would say to you is that the Bible is insistent that if you really want to know the will of God for your life or any other life, you need to listen to the word of God, God's special revelation, because you cannot deduce the will of God for anybody's life by studying nature or pandemics or earthquakes. You may remember Elijah in 1 Kings 19. He goes up to Mount Horeb. And what does the story say? It says there was an earthquake, but God was not in the earthquake. There was a fire, but God was not in fire. There was a mighty wind, but God was not in the wind. And then there was what? A still, small voice. You cannot deduce the will of God for a nation or individuals or your family by just looking at nature and saying, well, I'm putting my finger to the wind now. It looks like a bad wind is going to blow my way. Well, no. If you want to know the will of God for your life, read the Bible and study God's special revelation. That's really what you have to do. Now, no one apocalyptic document, if you're comparing Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, uh, Book of Revelation, or other early Jewish literature, and there was lots of it, lots of early Jewish apocalyptic literature that didn't make the canon. None of them have all the same features, but there is a constellation of features that regularly occur, and one of those is that the audience is under pressure and under persecution, and in some cases, even under martyrdom. Did you know that the word martyr comes from the Greek word martus, which means in the first place, just a witness of any kind, both a living witness, and it can be somebody who witnesses even unto death by means of their death. That's where we get the word martyr. 
so in a sense, the book of Revelation is the biblical book of martyrs. And all of this apocalyptic literature is dealing with people that are in exile in the Bible and are suffering, and many have died, and it doesn't look like justice is being done. When is God going to, how long, O oh Lord? Did you notice the saints under the altar in Revelation 6 are grumpy? They're up there complaining. I mean, imagine going to heaven and then still not being satisfied, right? They're under the altar in heaven going, how long, O oh Lord? They're going, my mama done told me I'm having a bad day. I mean, they are singing the blues in heaven, and they're given a choir robe and told to hush that God's got it under control. Uh, yes, heaven is not the final destination at all. <laughs> the final destination is in the new creation down here after Jesus returns, after the dead are raised, and after the new creation happens. Our final destination is not somewhere out there. Our final destination is right here in the new creation when Christ returns. That's the big picture. And these documents are not written for armchair scholars like me. They're written for people who are under severe pressure or persecution or in prison or, in fact, facing martyrdom. And for them, it's a very living book because it tells them, be faithful unto the end and you will be rewarded. You will be saved. That's the message. Next slide. So apocalyptic literature arose in a Jewish context in the first place with Ezekiel and then Daniel and Zechariah. It arose in exile. Well, how long was the Babylonian exile? It was 70-some years. In other words, more than a biblical generation, which is 40 years. So there were people who went to exile who never saw justice, never saw God redeem them, never got to return to Jerusalem at all. Indeed, even when they were allowed by Cyrus the Persian to return to Jerusalem, the truth of the matter is that many of them didn't ever go home. They just stayed in Babylon. And so there was a, a, the beginning of a Jewish diaspora in, in ancient Babylon, modern-day modern Iraq and Iran, in fact. So one of the things that comes from reading this apocalyptic literature is the difficulty of understanding how God can still be God and still be faithful to his people. And yet in my generation, justice has not come for us. When is it going to come? Well, God used that situation to stimulate in the mind of Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah and later Jews the idea of an afterlife, that after this life, there was going to be a life in heaven, there was going to be an afterlife on earth, and finally, one day, there would be God's justice and redemption on earth. It might not happen in your time. It might not happen in your children's time, but eventually, there was going to be return from exile, there was going to be redemption, and there was going to be justice. And God's people, I mean, the theme of justice permeates this literature over and again, over again. So this literature in many ways is very, very prescient for a time like ours where there are great cries for justice, equal justice for all. This literature had been crying that out since long before the time of Christ. 
Where is God's justice? Where is fair judgment for all people? And the answer was, God will rectify things, if not in this life, at least in another life, or an afterlife, or in the other world. I mean, that's sort of the basic answer to the question about justice. If not in your time, then in the future, uh, when God resolves these kind of issues. Next slide. So, since this is minority literature, and you really need to get this part, it is using coded and symbolic language. Why? Because if you're going to criticize the emperor and the way Roman justice is done and the persecution of Jewish Christians or any kind of Christian by the authorities, what you don't want is these stories, these visions, this language falling into the hands of the emperor. Because in the first place, Mr. 666 was Nero, the first emperor who persecuted Christians. In fact, here's the really remarkable thing, and we'll probably talk a little bit about more of this later. Jews, I mean, there were no Arabic numbers in Jesus's day or before Jesus' day. There were no, more, no Arabic numbers before there were Arabs. So one, two, three, four, five, they didn't have those kind of numbers. What they had was letters of the alphabet for numbers. And each letter of the alphabet, whether it be Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek, had a numerical value. That's how they counted, using letters of the alphabet. So here's the remarkable thing. If you were to take a first century coin with a picture of Nero on it, there would be an inscription that said, Neron Kaiser Augusti Divi Filii, Nero Caesar, the August Caesar, the son of God. If you were to add up the numerical value of all those letters on a coin from Nero, guess what number it adds up to? Six, six, six. Any first century Christian who read the book of Revelation would not have said, oh, this must be about some world leader in the 21st century. No, they would have said, in the first place, this Antichrist, this 666 person, is the pagan Roman emperor persecuting Christians. And the same thing applied to Domitian, because he was even a worse persecutor at the end of the first century in John's day. Probably it is John's critique of Domitian that landed him in exile on the island of Patmos until Domitian went down for the count in the late 90s AD. So what we need to understand is this symbolic language and this coded number system was not obscure to the first Christians. But if you want to be in on the code, you don't go to modern preachers who think they know what it's about. You compare it to other ancient early Jewish literature and find out how that sort of symbolic language works. And that's the way that this stuff has to be uh, interpreted. And it's precisely because the language is generic that it applies in every generation of Christian history. There have always been gnarly rulers. There have always been pandemics. 
There have always been earthquakes and famines and wars and rumors of wars and false prophets. In every generation of human history, Christians have had to deal with these kinds of things. And so the book of Revelation is constantly relevant if you know how to interpret it. And these symbolic interpretations are deliberately multivalent. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that they are referential, but they could refer to a variety of persons or things because they are generic or universal in character. Mr. 666 represents a particular kind of wicked Christian persecuting emperor. That's what he represents. Next slide. Now, if you compare the throne chariot vision, and one of the things I'd ask you to do sometime maybe later this week is just crack open your Bibles and read Ezekiel 1 and then compare it to Revelation 4 because John is scripture, has a scripture-saturated brain. He has a scripture-saturated brain. And one of the texts that has most influenced the way he expresses his revelations is Ezekiel 1. So compare Ezekiel 1 and Revelation 4. And what you discover is that the description of the four creatures upholding the throne of God in Ezekiel are described in one way, but in Revelation 4, there are differences. For example, in Ezekiel, you've got eyes in the wheels of the throne chariot flying around. You don't have that in Revelation 4. Now, what does this tell us? These are not literal descriptions. They're characterizing descriptions, indicating the quality of what's going on. Yes, they are referring to real things, but they're discovered, uh, they're, they're described in flexible imagery in flexible ways that can be modified. They're not literal descriptions of anything. We're dealing with analogies and metaphorical language. It was like, it was like. In some ways, these uh, visions of John are more like political cartoons. They get their message across by hyperbole and exaggerated descriptions, and that's part of the nature of this literature. But if you don't understand that, you're going to be in trouble. Uh, let me give you an example. I, I like to say a text without a context is just a pretext for what you want it to mean. So I'm minding my business pastoring four Methodist churches. You know, by the fourth time, the sermon was reasonably good. Preaching in four different churches over the course of a couple of Sundays every week. And um, I get a phone call from one of my parishioners named Glenn Ray Smith. He said, Dr. Ben, I got a problem. I said, well, do tell, Glenn Ray, how can I help? He said, well, I don't know my Bible so well, but I was nailing down some shegles with my fellow carpenter up on a roof the other day, and I told him I was going to breed my hunting dogs, and he said, oh, no, the Bible says quite specifically you shouldn't breed dogs. I mean, he was serious as a heart attack about this. He said, does the Bible really say that I can't breed dogs. And I said, I'm pretty sure, Glenn Ray, the Bible doesn't say that, but I'm going to go look at every P-picking reference to dog in the Bible, and I'll get back to you. So went through the New Testament lexicon, nothing. Started going through the King James lexicon, knowing that his friend was a King James-only kind of dude. And I came across this verse in the original King James, 1611. Thou shalt not breed with the dogs. 
I called up Glenn Ray. I said, Glenn Ray, I got good news. I got bad news. He said, well, give me the good news first. I said, all those furry little four-footed tail-wagging creatures, you can breed all those you want. The Bible says nothing against that. Glenn Ray says, well, what could be the bad news then, Dr. Ben? I said, there is this verse in the old King James that says, thou shalt not breed with the dogs. But in context, what it means is this. True Israelites should not sexually fraternize with foreign women and especially not with prostitutes. Glenn Ray processed that for a minute. He said, well, I'm feeling ever so much better now, Dr. Ben. My wife, Betty Seuss, just from Chatham County, North Carolina, and she for sure is not either a foreigner or a prostitute. I said, well, you're good then. You're good then. Now, my whole point of telling you that story is if you do not interpret the Bible in its original context, historical, literary, theological, ethical, you can twist the text and make it mean anything. And unfortunately, the kind of text that has been most twisted out of shape in many different times is apocalyptic literature, this precise kind of literature. So it really requires detailed and careful study. Next slide. So um, let's take just an example. We have Christ described as a lion, and then in the next breath, he's described as a lamb. Now, a literalist would say, well, which is it? Is he a hybrid lion or lamb? Is he both? He's described as the Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters of the, of the Greek alphabet. These are not literal descriptions. When you get to heaven, you're not going to see your Savior look like Baba Black Sheep. These are not literal descriptions. They are character descriptions, not physical descriptions. And the same can be said about Nero, who we talked about a little earlier, Mr. 666. And there's a great fascination with numbers. For Jews, the number of perfection was seven. This is why, for example, in the Gospel of John, we have seven sign narratives. We have seven I am sayings. We have seven discourses based on the seven I am sayings. Seven was the number of perfection. So it is in the book of Revelation as well. There's seven seals, there's seven bowls, there's seven trumpet blasts. And if you wanted to signal, in Jewish way of thinking, imperfection or chaos, you used six or six six or six six six. It's the number of chaos, of destruction, of imperfection. So you have to know how to interpret the symbols. Next slide. Um, the use of symbolic numbers is, has a technical name, which you don't really have to learn. It's called gematria. And there were certain numbers that were especially significant to Jews. The number of three. Jesus' is 12 disciples, there was an inner circle, wasn't there? Peter, James, and John. Seven, as I already mentioned, is a number of perfection. Ten, a whole number. Seven times ten, 70 years. The exile in Babylon wasn't exactly 70 years, but what seven times ten meant to a Jew was 
the whole period, the complete period of time. Twelve. There's the twelve tribes. There's the twelve disciples, and so on. So these are important numbers. By the way, 144,000 is a multiple of 12. So all that's really telling us is the whole people of God that are going to be saved will be saved. That, that's the point. It's not that exactly 144,000 people will be saved. It's that the whole people of God who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and have been faithful unto death will be saved. Don't tell the Jehovah's Witnesses that. They originally thought this was a literal number. So when they got to more than 144,000 Jehovah Witnesses in America, they had to reverse and, and, and change their theology. All of a sudden, it wasn't a literal number anymore because there were too many Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, it never was a literal number. It was never intended to be a literal number. It just is a number indicating the full people of God. Now, these numbers represent definite things, but they are seldom given as literal numbers of years. Let's take another example. The millennium, a thousand years. Well, that's a multiple of what? Ten. Huh. That's a whole number. All that really means is the millennium is going to last a big old long honking period of time. It doesn't have to be exactly a thousand years. It just needs to be huge, really long. And, and here's the other thing. First century Jews and Christians were perfectly happy with using inexact numbers, not literal numbers. Remember again, they didn't have Arabic numerals. And so much of the language they use is figurative. Let me give you an example. In the first eight chapters of Mark, the word euthus immediately comes up almost 40 times. And immediately Jesus went up the hill and prayed. And immediately he got in a boat with the other side of the lake. And immediately he went up the hill and healed the Gadarene demoniac. And immediately the demons went into the pigs. And immediately the pigs ran into the ocean. I mean, you get this image of running around the empire with his tongue hanging out. But in fact, the word immediately doesn't mean immediately. It just means next. So we need to go lightly on the numbers and the time references to things. I'll give you another example. We hear in some texts that Jesus rose on the third day. We hear in other texts, Jesus rose after three days. Now, this has caused a huge kerfuffle in modern Christianity, because how could it be after three days if it's on the third day? Well, this didn't cause anybody to break out in a sweat in the first century AD, because that's just two different ways of saying that there will be parts of three days that take place before Jesus rose from the dead. That's all it means. It doesn't mean we have to count up three full 24-hour days. So we need to stop reading back into the Bible, our modern conceptions of time and place and the way descriptions work, these are not literal numbers or literal descriptions. They just aren't. And we need to be okay with that. Because if it was good enough for the first Christians and the people who were inspired to write these books, it should be good enough for us as well. Next slide. Now, 
one of the interesting things that makes John's revelation stand apart from many other Jewish apocalyptic works is that a lot of early Jewish apocalypses that are not in the Bible, like the Testament of Abraham or the Testament of Irik or the Testament of Jacob, um, they are not authored by the person whose testimony it's said to be. No, they were written by much later Jews and then retrojected into the mouth of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. In fact, it's not real prophecy at all. It's history masked as prophecy, as if Abraham in advance had said all of these things, when in fact he had not. What really makes John stand out from a lot of other early Jewish literature is this is real prophecy. John is a real person. He's stuck on the island of Patmos. I mean, you can just picture him out there. He's in exile. He's probably working in one of the mines. So I hear him singing Tennessee Ernie Ford's old song. You load 16 tons and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me because I can't go. I owe my soul to the Roman Empire or something like that, right? He's out there in exile. He's a real person who has real visions that deal with his own congregations back in Turkey, the seven churches, and also deal with the future of Christianity in general. So this is actually real prophecy, unlike some other early Jewish apocalypses. And it really does envision both his present, the near future, and the more distant future as well. So we're dealing with actual apocalyptic prophecy, not history masked as if it were prophecy. And it does refer to the future as various various things about the present in Revelation 2 and 3. Next slide. Now, I will stress this. This kind of literature requires a prior understanding of the kind of literature it is to make sense of it. I've been saying that really indirectly all along. If you just pick up the Bible and read it abstractly with no preparation or no understanding how early Jewish apocalyptic literature works, it's going to come across like a fractured fairy tale. We got beasts with horns and multiple heads. You got all kinds of weird things going on. No, they're not Apache helicopters. They're just bugs. And here's the principle I want you to understand. This was God's word for first century Christians long before it got to us. It had to make sense to to first century Christians. That's what John intended in the first place. It didn't first become clear or make sense in the 20th or 21st century. In fact, if anything, it's less clear to us than it would have been to them because we don't know early Jewish apocalyptic literature. We don't know how to properly interpret it. So we really have to put ourselves in the shoes of the first Christians and try to listen to the text the way they would have heard it. There would have been no point at all of John saying something like, well, in the 20th century, there's going to be a Gulf War, and it's going to involve Kuwait and Iraq, and America is going to invade. First of all, John's audience had never heard of Iraq or Kuwait. 
never mind America. And so it had to have a revelatory meaning for them in the first place. And what it meant for them, hear me now, is still what the text means today. Let me say that one more time. What it meant for them is still the meaning of the text today. Now, the text may have different applications today or different significance for us in our spiritual walk, and that's all fine. But the meaning of the text has not changed since the first century AD. And we don't get to tell the text what it has to mean. It's our job to listen to the revelation of God, to the still small voice, and hear what he is saying to us rather than us trying to tell it what it must say or needs to say or should say. So the most important thing to bear in mind is that it was intended to have a meaning and make sense to John's immediate audience in Asia Minor in those seven churches, and it did. Otherwise, the book would have fallen into obscurity and never been copied and never ended up in our New Testament. It made sense to them in their own immediate milieu and context. Next slide. Now, as I said, not intended to only make sense in the 21st century. Not at all. The meaning of the text has not changed. So, again, one of the major themes of this whole book is leave justice, final judgment in the hands of God. Um, John's revelation is wanting to prepare his audience to suffer if necessary, even to the point of death, coupled with a promise. If they do, they will overcome. Now, this is the interesting thing. John uses the word victory, Nike, as in Nike, the shoes, Nikao. He uses that word to explain about a person who has suffered even unto death for his faith. That's the overcomers right there. It's not the person who's taken up arms and gone to battle with the Roman Empire. Not at all. This is a very nonviolent book in terms of the action required of Christians. It's a very nonviolent book. You're going to leave all of that, the judgments, in the hands of God. And the overcomers are those who are faithful, even through suffering, pressure, persecution, jailing, whatever it takes unto death. Those are the overcomers, the victory people. That's the victory. So one of the major themes of John's revelation is the need for us to be that kind of victorious person, victorious for Christ, who submitted to death, even death on a cross. Next slide. If we try to envision the process by which this book came to be, there are stages. Obviously, first, John had visions. But then secondly, somebody had to need, needed to set these visions down in writing. And then thirdly, the material was arranged in a particular way that would make sense and could be sent with a letter opening at the beginning in Revelation 2 and 3, and a letter closing in Revelation 22. So what we have is a series of visions surrounded by a letter opening and a letter closing because it's sent from a distance. It's sent from Patmos back to the church in Ephesus and the six other churches, that, which, by the way, 
those seven churches were all on one Roman road. This is a circular document meant to go to seven churches, not just one, and it would have gone from Ephesus on to the other six churches on that road. That's who it was for in the first place. But it, there was this process of producing this book in stages. First, the revelation, then the writing down of the visions, then the organizing of the material, and it has a very intricate organization. And then finally, the copying of the material and the sending it out as a document. Next slide. Here is one way of looking at the structure. And this is, uh, this is you can find this in my commentary. And uh, this is just one way of looking at the structure. Uh, there's the prologue and the initial vision, if you will. And then there is the inaugural vision of Christ and seven messages to the church. And then there's the inaugural vision of heaven leading to the three series of sevens, seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls. Most interesting thing to tell you about the three sets of sevens is it's not final judgment. These are disciplinary judgments on the earth to try to lead it to repentance. Try to lead it to repentance. And that's why there's a pause between the sixth and the seventh one, where God is awaiting to hear prayers saying, forgive us, the Lord, we've misunderstood you. We didn't really know what you were talking about. And then there are certain interludes, like chapter 12 through 14, 20, and 15, two to four, which retell the story of God's people during a conflict with evil, during a conflict with evil. So that's kind of the early part of the structure. Now, next slide. And here's the rest of the structure. There's the bowls. And then we have a revelation of the tale of two cities. In this corner, Babylon, i.e. Rome, represented as the harlot the unfaithful one, the moral iniquitous one, and on the other hand, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from above when Christ returns, when Christ returns to rule on the earth. So at the end, we have, as Dickens used to say, the tale of two cities. Only these two cities are the world-dominating empire and its pagan ruler, and on the other hand, the new Jerusalem, who is, in fact, ruled by Christ himself. And then finally, we have the epilogue. Come soon, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Now, that's the basic structure of it all. We could debate the, the parts of it along the way, but that gives you a rather clear vision of what the structure really is. There are preliminary judgments, the three sets of sevens. Most scholars would say that the three sets of sevens are not 21 judgments in a row, but there are three different ways of talking about the seven judgments, three uh, more expansive and amplified. So the second set of seven is an amplified version of the first set, and the third set of sevens is an amplified version of the second set. And, and none of those are final judgment. All of those are disciplinary, sent from Christ to, to lead the world to repentance. And it might be worth saying here, above all else, a pandemic like we're going through 
should remind us of the fragile nature of life and recognize that we are not in control of all these things. Not even with the best of science are we in control. So it might be good during this time to reflect on our life and repent of our sins and repent of our self-centeredness and put others first and be self-sacrificial and not self-indulgent and demand our rights. No, we should be talking about our responsibilities to our fellow human beings. That's what we should be talking about, to say the least. So that's kind of an overview of what's going on in the book of Revelation. And I'm willing to bet we got lots of questions, even if I just stop right there. So, Trevor, is that the end of this particular slide set? Are we yes, good? Yes, sir, it is. Excellent. Well, let's, at, at this point, let's just go to the chat, the questions, and I will respond to questions. And what I'm going to do, because it's getting dark in my room, is I'm going to turn on a light so I don't appear like the shadow. Okay, great. Yeah, that'd be helpful. Um, Dr. Witherington, when you get back, tell everybody, too, what your background is that you told me earlier today. I think that's interesting and fun. Okay. Now, now then, can you see me now? Hopefully you can. Okay, which part of your background were you referring to? Your background, sir. Yes, but which part? What it is. Okay, I was born as very at a very early age. No, your your virtual, boo, your virtual background. Uh, oh, you got me good. Shoot. Oh, that's that's Petra in Jordan from the last time I was in Petra. That's what very it is. Cool. Very cool. Okay, so um, we have about three or four uh, good questions. Particularly, I think you are blowing some people's minds with some of the concepts you're dropping. And I think we could probably answer um, some of the questions uh, here. And if you want to go, because you finished early, you are the first presenter to actually finish a little bit early. So kudos to you. How about that? Um, if you want to jump to another section like we talked about, feel free to do that after we answer a couple of these questions here. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. So one person asked this. Uh, they said, it's my understanding that Revelation was not written by John the Disciple. Dr. Witherington mentions John of Patmos. Does that mean John of Patmos is not slash may not be the same John the disciple? Yeah, that's, that's right. John in the book of Revelation does not claim to be one of the 12. He doesn't claim to be a Zebedee. He simply claims to be a seer, as in a visionary prophet on the island. And if you're a student of Greek, I mean, my goodness, the Greek of the Gospel of John is worlds apart from the Greek of the book of Revelation. Um, and, and indeed, uh, the book of Revelation's Greek is very different from 1, 2, and 3 John. So, yes, I don't think we're talking about John, son of Zebedee here. Interesting. Fascinating. Um, do you want to give everybody just a little bit back what we do know? He's not a son of Zebedee. What would we know about this John of Patmos? Well, what we know about him from just the internal content of Revelation is that he's a prophet and that he was an authority figure in these seven churches. He wouldn't be sending this revelation to those seven churches unless he had some authority over them. So he's not the only authority in those churches. Presumably, there were also apostles 
presumably the beloved disciple was one of them. And these communities are, by the way, they are largely communities of Jewish Christians um, and not Gentile Christians. They're largely communities of Jewish Christians. This is why there are so much angst about their relationship with the synagogue in Revelation 2 and 3. I mean, you even hear the phrase, the synagogue of Satan, if you may mm-hmm. remember from Revelation 2 and 3. So largely congregations of Jewish Christians, and John is a prophet who has authority over these churches. And I would say he's probably writing this after the initial apostolic authority, the beloved disciple, had died. Gotcha. And, and was writing this in the, probably in the late 90s. But before he returned from exile, what we know about exile to an island is that when an emperor died, that decree fell in a, into abeyance. You were not going to be in exa- exile anymore. You could go home. Mm. So clearly, I think this was written from before 96 AD when Domitian died mysteriously. Interesting. Uh, we got Pastor Dale muted. He's joining us now on audio here. And so, Pastor, feel free to interject if you have any place where you want the conversation to steer any questions that you have in particular think would be important for our people. Okay? Thanks, Trev. Great. Okay. Um, so, uh, one thing that's interesting, Dr. Witherington, you couldn't, uh, you're busy lecturing and teaching. I could still see lots of faces. I think this is one of the presentations where people have laughed the most uh, because you're funny. And uh, I think. Don't tell that just, that, Trevor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, lots of people are commenting in the field. Lots of people are commenting on how good your singing voice is. <laughs> and yeah, I, uh, one, I grew up on the piano bench. My mother was a pianist, and I've been involved in Methodist church music most of my life. So that's a, a sort of indigenous part of who I am since I was a child. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, and some people are saying you're an awesome presenter, very knowledgeable, very entertaining. Um, Okay, so a couple questions here. I'm just trying to sort through and call some of the ones that we might be most relevant and broadest. Um, uh, So one person, I think this is some of these things, uh, I want to be able to pull out some questions that might be common uh, vocabulary or or common ideas from apocalyptic literature people might have that you might be challenging preconceived notions. So one person said, which I thought was a really great question, they put, so during this time, they first wrote, what does the mark of the beast mean? And then they wrote, oh gosh, is this not literal? Where you're, you're, I think you're changing some paradigms for some folks. Right. So would you walk us through that? And Sure. Well, I think John would be laughing if he had heard, for example, in the 1990s, that the mark of the beast was the barcode on products that we get at Walmart. You know, he, he would be laughing because there were no barcodes in the first century AD, and that would have been completely unintelligible to his first audiences. And again, he's writing in a way they can understand. Mm-hmm. So, yes, the, the, the mark of the beast is simply the indication that this person has dedicated their life to uh, something that's wicked, something that's evil, uh, something that's anti-God in various ways. Uh, and we're not talking about somebody branded on the forehead. Uh, we're, we're talking about something that characterizes the way they live their life and their personality. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so here's again, some more paradigm shifting questions. Some people, a lot of these are clarifier questions of, Oh my gosh, well, what about this? 
Uh, one person wrote, so if I'm understanding you correctly, then the portion of scripture that dis- uh, that describes what could be a modern day motorcycle gang probably really isn't even close to that because the Christians of that time would have no clue what a motorcycle was to begin with, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, and, you know, I have to say, and I'm not suggesting anybody in this audience is this way, but in general, it's the height of arrogance for us to think, God bless those first Christians. They couldn't possibly understand this. But we, with our superior intelligence and better spiritual perceptivity and better understanding of prophecy, we know exactly what it's about, even though they couldn't possibly have understood it in the first century. That, to me, is just the height of arrogance. <laughs> you know, that, that is a very narcissistic approach to the text. We should be coming to the Bible in a position of wanting to learn from God how he originally expressed himself, because what it meant back there is still the eternal meaning of the text today. And it's not for us to just sort of read all kinds of things back into the text. Like the example I gave of thou shalt not breed with the dogs. I mean, clearly that carpenter had misread that one singular verse and ripped it out of context and assumed it was talking about puppies. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's very, that's very helpful. Um, here's, uh, okay. We're, so somebody went there. I'm, I'm going to ask it just to, you know, be a little helpful here. Some person, I think they met this in jest but it still might be helpful to talk a little bit about. Uh, they said, so everything I saw in the movie or read in the book left behind, could I just forget about it? Like they put it all and forget about it in one word. You know, well, what I would say is it should be left behind. <laughs> the left behind series should be left behind. And by the way, that whole thing has gone so viral. Well, now it's going kind of down, but did you know they're actually marketing boxer shorts for the left behind series and for the husband there is words on the back of the left cheek boxer short that says left behind and then there's a pair for the wife also boxer shorts that says on the right cheek right behind so not only is it bad theology it's sexist as well Uh, (laughs) yes I'm saying that the Left Behind series, the good news about the Left Behind series is it made people really think about the future, Mm. okay? But I'm here to tell you tonight, and when I come back in the future and we get to talk about this in much more detail, I will tell you that the doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture is a modern invention. Nowhere in church history did the early Christians all the way up to the late 18th century think there was going to be a rapture of any kind? They thought there was not going to be two second comings. They thought there was going to be one, the visible return of Christ from heaven to rule on earth. That's all. So we're not, there's nothing in the book of Revelation about beam me up, Scotty. In fact, if you understand the way apocalyptic works, listen to what John says about his own experience. Remembering that the whole time he's writing this, he's still on terra firma on the island of Patmos off the coast of Turkey, right? He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day 
And I heard her saying, voice saying, come up higher and see the things that are going on in heaven. This is not about flying air Ruach, the Holy Spirit, into heaven and getting a picture of things. This is not about him being raptured into heaven. It's about him having a vision of what's going on in heaven. That's all it's about. He's still on planet Earth. There is no concept of the rapture in the book of Revelation at all if you mean something more than having a vision of what heaven and the afterlife is like. And frankly, there's not a rapture idea elsewhere in the New Testament. I'll give you two quick examples. Example number one, if you go to Matthew 24 or the parallel in Mark 13, Jesus says, it will be in the last days like the times of Noah. Remember that whole business about two grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left behind, which is where the series name comes from, right? Well, here's the deal. The analogy with Noah is that those who are taken are taken away in judgment by the flood. And those who are left behind are Noah and his family who are going, phew, I'm glad I was left behind. It's good to be left behind when the judgment of God comes. And similarly, any first century Christian would know that when you hear two are grinding at the mill, one will be taken, it means they'll be taken away for judgment. Mm. And it would be much better to be left behind. Thank you. So that is completely the opposite of the meaning that is given to that kind of text in dispensational theology. And it's completely 180 degrees wrong. So there isn't a doctrine of the rapture in the New Testament. We, we don't have an escape clause. The book of Revelation doesn't say, don't worry, when things get really gnarly, God will beam you up. What it says is, God will be faithful to you, even unto death, even if you're persecuted, even if you're prosecuted, even if you're executed. God will be with you through all of that, as he was with his son, even unto death on the cross. So don't expect to be exempt from suffering. Don't expect to be beamed up when things get really gnarly on earth. No, be prepared to be faithful even if death comes. That's the message. It's not escapist literature. It's very realist literature about how God has not abandoned us even in the midst of our afflictions. Yeah. Trevor, I want to jump in there because um, one of the things I loved about that, and, you know, that's, that's challenging, uh, you know, uh, ben and some of what you're sharing there, but here's what I love uh, that it points back to some a place where I wanted us to go back to, which is really more at the beginning of your lecture when you were sharing with us about you know this um, apocalyptic literature encouraging those who are suffering to hold on and that God will be faithful. There's a there is a real pastoral note in that. Can you help us understand that uh, a little more? Because you know we look a, around at some of the things, my goodness, that are happening right now in our world. Uh, I know as a pastor uh, on our team that we have lots of folks, uh, some on this call, carrying heavy things. And so, I, you know, I've never heard it quite this way in, in the sense of apocalyptic literature reminding us of God's perseverance and faithfulness with us 
in the midst of really, really hard times. I'd love you to ex uh, help us sure. with that even a little more. Sure. You know, I, I actually, I was uh, watching a, a video this morning, as I mentioned to the two of you, about John Lewis and his life. And yeah. he was a very devout Christian. He was jailed more than 40 times. He was yeah. beaten dozens of times. And he told the story of how one of the KKK who beat him in, uh, in Rock Hill, South Carolina, when he was on one of the Greyhound bus civil rights tours, um, in 2009, that was in 1961, in 2009, that man in his 70s came to his congressional office and asked for forgiveness for what he had done to him. And John Lewis said, of course I accept your apology. Of course I forgive you. On the basis of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're supposed to love and not hate. Hate is too great a burden for anybody to carry through a lifetime. Mm. And he got up and gave the man a hug. Now, <laughs> that commitment to love and nonviolence in a time of violence and violent protest and just chaos is countercultural. It was countercultural then because the Roman Empire was nothing if it wasn't violent, really violent. I mean, that's how they conquered the empire after all. Right. Right. And, and so the message of John is do not behave like the world. <laughs> behave like Jesus Christ, who, when he was abused, did not return abuse. We're supposed to even love our enemies. I saw a good bumper sticker the other day. It says, love your enemies. This will confuse them. <laughs> uh, that is so good. I want to, let me point at something else you mentioned too, because uh, you drove by this. Now, I want to say, I just want to say here, uh, both Trevor and I uh, have preached this, uh, this idea about not by and by in the sky but um, but here, you know, uh, N.T. Wright's classic phrase where he says, you know, life after life after death. Right. And um, talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. Us, yeah. That's actually a question from the chat, too. So we're covering well, a couple. Good. Well, good. I am not saying that when you die, you don't go to be with the Lord, because the New Testament's very clear about that. If anyone's yeah. in Christ and they die, they go to be with the Lord. So don't worry. Be happy. That's still true. But let's not put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. I mean, only 2% of the discussion about the afterlife in the New Testament is about going to heaven. 98% is about the end of human history when Christ returns and the new creation is made. Yeah. So we need to put the emphasis where the emphasis lies in the New Testament about the return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment the new heaven and new earth, that is our ultimate hope. I like to put it this way. Heaven is just an ultra-clean bus station on the way to the new creation. Come on. There's a reason why the saints in heaven in Revelation 6, 6 are grumpy. They know they haven't reached the finish line yet. The finish line is when heaven comes down with Christ and recreates the creation that we live in now and, and think about it. I mean, the Bible begins with a creator God who saw that all that he created was very good. Why in the world would we think that a creator God 
would give up all of this beautiful creation that he has made in exchange for a few scrawny souls yeah. in heaven. Yeah. That just doesn't make any sense of the Bible at all. No, no. Our final destination is the new creation. And I think there is a longing in the human heart for us to get there. I mean, if you really think about what underlies the concerns about climate change and the environmental movement and the atmosphere, and why are they so concerned about this? Because this world is our home. And ultimately, God is coming to dwell with us here. So we should be taking care of it in the meantime. We should be looking after it in the meantime. Right. If you have an escapist theology of, well, just beam me up. I don't have to worry about all this. It's all going to Hades in a handbasket. Wrong. We just, ever since Adam, we were told to tend the garden and take care of it. That's yeah. our role. And indeed, the Bible tells us that in the end, God's coming to dwell with us. Dr. Ben, uh, the, the person who asked, help me understand, heaven, New Jerusalem, um, by jumping off of Pastor Dale's question, they just put in the chat, mind blown. So, right. yeah, super helpful. Um, can we switch gears and talk about a little bit of church history around this book? Some people have asked some really interesting questions around that. Um, we have one question in here um, that one person said, why do you think early reformers didn't tackle understanding uh, this chapter or this book of the Bible? Like why, why is it Calvin really struggled with this and why is it others struggled? Yeah. And, well, part, partly it's because by the time we get to the Protestant Reformation, there are almost no Jews in the church. There are almost no people in the church that understand early Jewish literature. Wow. There, there are almost no people who understand Jewish apocalyptic in the church. I mean, today, the church is 99.8% Gentile, right? Well, that was already true at the time of the Protestant Reformation, partly because of anti-Semitism, mm. partly because we had persecuted Jews and, and cloistered them into ghettos in the major cities of Europe, and then the coup de grace for modern Jews is what happened during the Holocaust, when the most advanced civilization in Europe, Germany, decided we're going to get rid of all the Jews. In, and that was the Holocaust. Two million Jews or more died during the Holocaust, right? So the church is not very Jewish today, yeah. <laughs> any more than it was during the beginning of the Reformation. And, and that's why the Reformers didn't really understand this. They had never studied it in light of early Jewish literature. That makes perfect sense. Um, I've I'm question from me, and then I'll go back to the chat and a question that came over text. If I remember correctly from your class, uh, it was either your class or a church history class, I can't remember, um, that talked about the forming of the canon of the Bible, particularly the New Testament. And if I remember correctly, is it true that Revelation was added last to the canon? Well, there were several books that were called anti-legomenon. Mm -hmm. That is, they were disputed books. And indeed, they are all the last books in the canon. Mm -hmm. They're the, uh, the so-called Johannine epistles, First mm -hmm. and Second Peter, okay. Jude, okay. and the book of Revelation, the ones that are right at the trunk end of the canon. Yeah. Those were the disputed books. Mm -hmm. What was not disputed was the Gospels and Acts and the letters of Paul 
and somehow Hebrews was thought to be one of the letters of Paul, so that really wasn't disputed either. But uh, And interestingly, uh, when the discussion went on further, 1 John and 1 Peter were not disputed. Mm. But 2 and 3 John and 2 Peter and Jude and, and James and the book of Revelation, those were the disputed books. Now, I am extremely thankful that all of those books made the cut. And if you want to talk about providence of God in an age before texting and tweeting and all of that, well, think about this. In 364 AD, Athanasius wrote his pastoral letter and said, it's these 27 books plus nothing, which should be our Christian canon. At almost the same time, Pope Innocent said, it's these 27 books plus nothing from Rome. Wow. And at the same time, almost exactly the same time in the late fourth century, the Senate of Carthage in Northern Africa said, it's these 27 books plus nothing that wow. should be in our canon. Now, that could not have happened except by a miracle. Yeah. Because wow. they were disputing all kinds of things between right. those three parts of the church, right? Should Latin be the language of the church? Should Greek be the language of the church? And so on. So it's nothing short of a providential miracle that they all agreed this is the New Testament, right? And, and I like what my old teacher, Bruce Metzger from Princeton, taught me. He said, it's not that the church decided what should be in the canon. No, they discerned what the Holy Spirit was saying to them over the period of centuries of discussing these books until they became convicted in all the major parts of the church in the Mediterranean world, that it should be these books. That's right. The church recognized the canon. It didn't decide the canon. Yeah, well put there. Thank you. Um, That was worth the price of admission, everybody. Yeah, I know, right? Exactly. Um, Since we're talking about some of the, the pastoral letters, um, I had a person text me, actually, uh, the senior pastor from my home church growing up where me and my whole family uh, came to faith or came to a deeper understanding of faith. And he texted me. He's on the call here tonight. And he asked uh, particularly about Second um, Peter chapter 3. Okay. And he said, how does Second Peter 3 fit with John's revelation? I guess he's talking about the the way the that that particular text talks about what's going to happen at the end during the final judgment on the earth. And you could actually compare that to what's going on in Hebrews 11. Hmm. Uh, Is there going to be, what God promised is, it's not going to be a massive flood (laughs) that destroys the world. It's going to be some kind of conflagration. And of course, the b- debate between the theologians is, is this, is this a remodeling of the existing creation? Or are we starting over from scratch? Mm. Um, if you listen to Paul in Romans 8, he says the whole of creation is groaning, yeah. longing for the day that it will come up for renewal. So I think that even though the language is dramatic in Second Peter, and also in Hebrews 11, we're not talking about an incineration of the creation. We're talking about a renewal by the one who makes all things new. Mm. Interesting. That's, 
Um, I'm glad I'm glad uh, you know, we had that question come in because even reading, uh, we referenced Dale, Pastor Dale referenced N.T. Wright's great work of Surprised by Hope. And that was my one question, even though that book was fantastic. That was, that was my one question from that. So that was very helpful. Um, all right. There's a couple other really great ones here. There was a little thin at first because I think everybody was trying to drink from a fire hose to try to grasp what you're talking about <laughs> poured in. Oh, that's what happens when you give me one hour to do a three-hour class. Yeah, I, I have to say, Dr. Withering, I feel like every one of our presenters, I I want to apologize to them. You know, uh, here's your life's work. You got an hour. Impress us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Okay. Um, all right. So, uh, uh, Dr. Withering, we have a question. Um really about the what theologians talk about this isn't how they put it but the theological discussion about this is the fate of the unevangelized uh and so uh somebody wrote this question in here i thought it was helpful um does revelation give a response uh, about non-believers getting a second chance uh, do they get a second chance during the seven-year tribulation um uh well that's that's a very good question and um i I would say that the book of Revelation doesn't really explain that process uh, clearly. But if you were to turn to Romans 11, Paul definitely thinks that when the Redeemer comes back from heavenly Zion, that Israel will get a second chance to recognize their Savior. Mm. Uh, and that's right there at the end of, Revelation, uh, of Romans 11, right? Paul even says, after the full number of Gentiles have come in, when Christ returns, all Israel, by which he means a large number of Jews, will recognize their Messiah and be saved. Hmm. Well, now, I mean, and here's the thing. I think we have a misconception. People are not lost because they haven't heard the gospel. Let me say that as clearly as I can. People are lost because what they do know of God from creation and from being created in the image of God has been twisted in their minds and in their thoughts, and they haven't responded to God as they should. This is what Romans 1, 18-32 teaches very, very clearly. It says it's not that they're totally ignorant of the existence of the living God. No, they have ignored what they do know simply from creation and from nature and from being created in the image of God. And they have rejected what they do know and exchanged the truth for a lie. Now that means that those people who have not heard the gospel are not being faulted for not having heard the gospel. They're being faulted for what they have done with what they do know, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That's what they're being faulted for. That's why they're lost because they have dedicated themselves to idolatry and immorality on the basis of twisting the text. I mean, you can't exchange a truth for a lie if you haven't had some part of the truth in the first place. Come on now. Well, they do. <laughs> they do. So that, that's, that's the big point about that. Um, I believe we have a God of infinite second chances yeah. and, and, until the Lord returns. And even after the Lord returns, who knows what's going to happen in the millennium? We can talk about that if I come back and talk more more about all of this, right? But only if you only if you sing us a few more songs. Well, I'll be happy to do that. 
Okay. I'd be happy to do that. We're going to end on apocalyptic note in a few minutes yeah. uh, with Sting's song, The Brand New Day, which yeah. fascinatingly is dealing with the deep longing in the human heart for a renewal of all creation and a renewal of all persons. It, it's a powerful song. And, and in the end, it has a gospel call. Stand up, all you lovers in the world. Mm-hmm. Stand up and be counted every man and every girl. I mean, it's a powerful song about a brand new day, about the new creation. And it's actually based on Sting's reading of Revelation 21 and 22. Oh my God. So it's a, it's, it's a, powerful, a powerful coda to what we've been discussing. Wow, interesting. Um, okay, uh, we'll try to squeeze in maybe two more questions before we, we hop to that. Okay. Uh, one is more... Uh, uh, specific from the text and one is more general, uh, more of kind of conceptual, which one would you rather answer? I don't care. Give them both. <laughs> I knew he was going to say that. All Throw right, them go, both. Yeah. Let's go with the textual one. Somebody asked about, um, man, community hope. Great questions. You guys poured them on at the end. Oh man. Uh, somebody asked particularly about revelation chapter 12. And so, you know, some people are, again, they, their paradigms have, have shifted on them, I think, in this one hour, try to process some of that. Right, yeah, right. So is that or is that not about recounting some of the birth of Christ? Um, yes, you, yes, that? it is. But the imagery is of uh, mother, the people of God, mm-hmm. who gives birth to Christ. So it's, it's Mary, but it's also a female image of the people of God as a mother. And so then you have this vision that notice what's happening to the mother. She's not beamed up into heaven. She's taken to a safe place on earth where Mr. Dragon Breath can't get to her, right? So this chapter 12 is about protection on earth from spiritual destruction. So hear me now. Chapter 12 will preach right now. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Christ is the Lord of your life, and you have protection, not from suffering in general or pandemics. You have protection from spiritual destruction. And the good, positive message of Revelation 12 is the church will persevere. The church will, the church, the gates of Hades are not going to prevail against the church. The church will survive this pandemic and any other that's thrown at it. That's right. Amen. Amen to that. Well, we're finding, you know, Pastor Joe, how often have you and I talked about that with each other and with our team over the past four months of, if you would have told us a few years ago that the church was not going to be able to gather publicly for worship for four months straight, and then, but we actually have grown in the pandemic. Yeah. You know, Jesus is going to build his church. Simply amazing. Uh, yeah. That's, that's, that's exactly right. That's his, he will find a way where there seems to be no way. Amen. Because after all, he's Lord. And all our strategies for church growth are as nothing compared to the mighty wind of the Holy Spirit Amen. doing the work. That's right. Amen. That's right. Amen. Okay, another question. Here's the conceptual one. Um, somebody wrote this. I, again, I think this is a, a really helpful question. So saying, so if we're talking about 2,000 years, maybe 5,000 years, whatever, and there's a, the new creation is here on earth, won't the earth be very overcrowded? 
So we're not going to heaven. I mean, so some people are, you know, this whole idea yeah. of the nation, heaven and earth becoming one. Well, well, it's a great question. There are many people that will need not be part of the new creation. One of the clear messages of the Bible is that not everybody's going to be saved. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's just very clear that, uh, I mean, I like how C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, hell is the place where God says, okay, if you insist, have it your way. Yeah. <laughs> you can be absent from the presence of God for the rest of your existence. Yeah. That's what hell really is. Leave apart the flames and the devil and the pitchfork and all that. Just ignore all that. It's you experiencing the absence of the presence of God forever and knowing forever that you've blown it, like in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, okay? So not everybody is going to end up on planet Earth as a saved person. Indeed, there are many texts, like Jesus says, narrow is the gate and not many get through. I mean, there are many texts that suggest that however many millions there are, in the kingdom of God, it's probably not a plurality of humanity through all generations. It just probably is not, which is in many ways sad because God loves the whole world and he could like nothing better than everybody responding positively to him, but it just isn't so, you know, it just isn't so. So, I mean, I think that's a partial answer, but to me, one of the most exciting bits is considering 1 Corinthians 15, what we are told is that when Christ returns, the dead in Christ will rise first. And I'm trying to picture that. All of a sudden, Christians will be in the majority all over the world. If all the Christians are raised from the dead at the beginning of the return of Christ, all of a sudden, we're going to be populating everywhere, right? I mean, that's pretty exciting. And interesting, to say the least. That, that's quite a vision. And if you read Revelation 20, it says, you want to be part of that resurrection, not the one at the end of the millennium, which leads directly to judgment. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Yeah. You want to be part of the first resurrection, not the last one. Right, right. Yeah, it doesn't also say, too, that there will be no more sea, and so there will be probably more land? Well, Wait a yeah, minute, I'll that is highly, that's metaphorical because okay. there, are, there are rivers and if there are rivers, there are going to still be seas. See, the word sea to a land-loving culture like Israel is a symbol of chaos. That's why you have uh-huh. Leviathan in the Psalms. That's why the, the piggies uh, and the, the deviled ham ends up in the Sea of Galilee. Mm-hmm. Bodies of water were assumed by Jews to be chaotic and demonic. And so mm-hmm. when they say there's going to be no more sea, the real message is there's going to be no more evil. That's really what's being said by that. Fascinating. Fascinating. I knew no more sea was a heresy. I could never believe that ever. Yeah, no, me neither. I'm, I'm partial to Cherry Grove and North Myrtle Beach. So Thank you. It, it better still be there. I, I've already told Jesus, if there's not going to be a beach when we get to the kingdom, I'm coming back. I mean, thank you. Thank you. All right. We're Scottish, so it doesn't matter to him. So that's right. Yeah, we're just used to living in the highlands and stealing horses. That's my people. Yeah, well, I hear you. Well, I think it's time for us to hear from two people who have reflected on this. And the other person that's involved in this video is Stevie Wonder, who was very much involved in the black church over many, many years.
And, um, and he actually has a song that says, people say heaven's a zillion miles from here. No, ultimately, it's going to be heaven on earth. You might want to look up that song and just listen it. Um, and, and, he, and he answers the question, why hasn't Christ come back sooner? He says, it's taken him so long because we've got so far to come. Mm. We've got so far to come. But this song is all about a brand new day. It's about Revelation 21 and 22. So enjoy. All right.
Never let me Man. say one thing to them, okay? What what a way to end. I want to say one thing. If you had us play that at the end, you would love our church. I'm just telling you right now. Well, I'm sure I would. And I, let me just say to you right now, and here's the challenge. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of pandemic, in the midst of exile for John, he had a vision of a brand new day. Amen. So I'm saying to all y'all, we're supposed to be the lovers, not the haters in this world. Stand up, every one of you. Stand for what's right and what's loving and what's forgiving and what's gracious and what's redemptive, and you will honor the vision of John of Patmos. Wow. Amen. Wow, wow, wow. Hey, everybody, can we thank Dr. Ben Witherington right there? Come on. Fantastic. We're getting a chorus of amens in the chat, Dr. Witherington. That's great. That's great. Good to be with you. And I'll look forward to the next time. God be willing. Amen. 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 All right, Pastor Joe, you want to sign us off? Yeah, I do. I want to, let's just pray real quickly, you guys. He's influencing a lot of people uh, in his work. So Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful for Dr. Ben and his presentation with us tonight. Lord, let us go from this place. Let us live with hope in our heart. We live in an age right now where people feel hopeless, and God, may the love of Christ that compels us, uh, Lord, even in our world, help us to manifest your hope, your truth, your light, your love in every single place, that we may spread abroad the fragrance of the knowledge of the Son of God wherever we go. Bless this man and his continued ministries. He influences younger generations of those called to Christian service. This we pray in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 God bless you guys. Thank you, Dr. Thank you, Dr. Winton. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.